Come with me to Hebrews chapter 11. I want to look with you again at verses 4 through 6. We began this last week. Ran out of time, so we want to finish that. And uh, there were some things that I omitted along the way, and uh, we'll pick up some of those things as well. And trust that this will be an encouragement to you, even as we have sung by faith. Now, this is our life. This is what we do. This is how we function. He is living by faith in God, who is sovereign over all the affairs in all the world and over all the affairs in our world, in our lives. We trust Him. Listen as I read verses 4 through 6, and then I will lead us in prayer. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found, because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Would you bow with me? Our Father, we stand by faith in Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no standing, there is no firmness, there is no rock, there, there is no standing before you. There is nothing that can place us before you in righteousness, in hopefulness, apart from Jesus Christ. But we believe Him. And so now we stand Believing Him, trusting Him, trusting Him for our salvation, trusting Him for His daily sovereign authority over our lives, trusting that He will fulfill the promises that He has made to us, that our salvation will be complete, that no matter what happens in this world, we in Christ are never hopeless. Oh, Father, would you help us to live that way this day? And even as we look backward at the history of faithful men this morning and in months to come, might you make us to be resolute, firm, unwavering, confident, hopeful, not because of what we are, but because of who Christ is, and because of what we are in Him. Might that be our hope. Might that be our confidence. And might we be driven more deeply in hope, even as we look at this familiar word this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. A generation ago, Charles Schultz helped us identify the nature of happiness. Happiness is a thumb and a blanket, said Linus. Happiness is having an umbrella and a new raincoat. Happiness is having a friend. Happiness is sharing. Happiness is finally getting your big teeth. Happiness is a pile of leaves. And of course, happiness is a warm puppy. 
Centuries ago, the American Constitution made happiness and its pursuit a fundamental right. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know your Constitution. About a century before that, Blaise Pascal wrote this, All men seek happiness, and that is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, he wrote, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object of happiness. This is the motive of every action of every man even of those who hang themselves. All men seek happiness. Those who drink too much alcohol and those who are teetotalers are both pursuing happiness. Those who spend indiscriminately on Amazon and those who are spendthrifts are both pursuing happiness, though by different goals. The question is not whether we are pursuing happiness. The question is, where are we pursuing happiness? What will we pursue in a quest to make ourselves happy? The Hebrew readers to which this author is penning this epistle thought that they could make life better for themselves by changing their circumstances and by avoiding persecution that was coming to them because they were claiming to be followers of Christ. And so to make life easier, to change their circumstances, they said, let's leave Jesus Christ aside. Let's give up Jesus Christ. Let's go back to the Old Testament law so that life will get better, life will get easier, and we won't be persecuted. The writer of this letter is exhorting these readers to find their joy in Christ by remaining faithful to Him. And so in the opening verses of this chapter, chapter 11 of Hebrews, He instructs us with this idea. The way to live by faith is to live for God's pleasure. To live by faith in Jesus Christ is not simply to say, well, yeah, I I trusted Jesus Christ. I walked an aisle back when I was six years old. That's not living by faith. Living by faith means we pursue Christ for all the pleasures that are to be found in Him. To live for His pleasure means that We want what He wants. And specifically, we want what He wants for our lives, for my life. And we lay aside our personal and fleshly desires and we submit to His direction for us. We want what He wants for us because we believe that He always wants what is best for us. He never wants something for us and desires something for us and designs something for us that is less than His best for us. And that's what we want. And we believe that, and so we pursue our pleasures in Him. In these verses, verses 4 through 6, we find two examples of pleasing God and three principles for pleasing God. Two examples for pleasing God and three principles for pleasing God. Let me just remind you, and expand a little bit about what we said about Abel last week in verse 4. 
And Abel, we found one who was pleasing God in or through obedient worship. And so he says in verse 4, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. So Abel worshipped God by bringing a sacrifice that was better than Cain's sacrifice. And Abel's sacrifice was better for this fundamental reason. It was offered by faith. In faith. It was faith that led to the kind of worship that he gave. And it was faith that produced his gift in worship. If we go back to Genesis chapter 4, and we won't go back there this morning, but if we go back to Genesis 4, you'll remember that it was given in faith because he gave the best part of the sacrifice. He gave the the best part of the animal. That is, he gave the fat portions. It was also the best because he gave of the first from the animal. So he gave before he knew that he would have any other animals for himself to eat on later. He gave trusting Believing that God would provide for him and God would sustain him. He was living by faith, acting as if God would keep his promises. And that's the very nature of faith, even as we found in chapter 10, verse 36, a couple of weeks ago. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. If you're faithful to him, he'll give you. What he has promised to give you. He won't withhold. He won't keep back. What is significant in Hebrews chapter 11 is the result of Abel's sacrifice. Notice the middle of verse 4. Through which, by means of that sacrifice, he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So, So he receives a testimony. He receives someone speaking in a court of law that he was righteous, that he was right before God. And it wasn't just any old testimony. Notice that he's even more specific. He says he gets he got a testimony and then he is specific at the end of the verse. God testified. God is the one who stood up, as it were, in the court of law and said, Abel is a righteous man. He has been declared righteous Before me, twice God speaks about Abel, twice God says his gifts were offered in faith, and twice he says that he is a righteous man. It is hard to imagine that as Cain was killing Abel, that he wasn't speaking against him. Now, the text in Genesis chapter 4 isn't clear about that. It just says that he killed him. But you can't imagine a scenario where where Cain wasn't speaking against him. And it's hard to imagine Abel not calling Cain to repent. And yet Cain killed him. Cain spoke against Abel. The writer of the Hebrews tells us, whatever Cain did against him, God spoke for him. God defended him, as it were, and God declared him to be righteous in the way that all men have always been saved, and that is he is declared righteous by faith because of his faith looking forward to one who would save him. And it seems that as the writer of the Hebrews is talking about this, he says he has obtained the testimony that he was righteous. It seems that he is using that as a parallel phrase um, 
for verse 6 that it, without faith it is impossible to please him. You, you must come by faith to please him. You must come by faith to be righteous before him. And it seems that he's using these ideas of being righteous and pleasing him in synonymous terms. And the result of Abel's life is that though he is dead, he still speaks. He's no longer alive, but his testimony is still speaking. His life is still saying, this is what it means to live by faith in God. Says one commentator, Abel is dead, but his faith is a living voice. And another, even a violent death could not muzzle the message of faith. So he's dead, but his testimony lives and he lives in heaven. Just a side note, we know very much, very little about Abel, but one of the things we do know is that Jesus Christ also had an estimation of Abel. And back in Matthew chapter 23, in verse 35, he he refers to Abel and he calls him righteous Abel. He is righteous. He has been declared righteous before God because of and through his faith. You know, when we come to worship and serve the Lord, it's tempting to do so looking for the approval of men. What did so-and-so think about my, my singing? I hope I wasn't off key too badly today. What did someone think about that prayer? What did they think about the reading, the preaching, the gift giving, the fellowship? What did they think about the way I was praying or what I was wearing? Abel is an example of living by faith in and through worship, asking the singular question, what did God think of my worship this morning? He worshiped the Lord to please the Lord, no matter what others thought of him and no matter what the cost was to him. Abel was one who pleased God through obedient worship. Then we come, verse 5, to the life of Enoch, one of the most remarkable stories in the Bible. Enoch, who was pleasing God when he was opposed in the world. And I noted last week that this is a, a really remarkable story Verse 5, the story about Enoch. But in reality, it's not just the story about Enoch, is it? It's a story about God. It's about the God who observed Enoch and his faith. It's about God who evaluated Enoch and declared him to be righteous. And it is about God who took him to glory. It's not as if Enoch said, I think I'll bypass death on my own. So the story about Enoch is really... The story about God. And why does God take him to heaven the way he does? Notice the text. Enoch was taken up so that, purpose clause, so that he would not see death. For he had obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Why was he taken up that way? Because he had a witness He had someone in a courtroom declaring him to be righteous and pleasing to God. As with Abel, as with all faithful men, Enoch was approved by God. God looked at him, smiled at him, as it were, was pleased with him because of the righteousness that had been imputed to him. I want you to also notice the context in which Enoch lived his righteous life. 
If you go to Genesis chapter 5, you will find that Enoch was the seventh generation after Adam. Adam's one sin had multiplied. You can't multiply one, but it had multiplied an immeasurable number of times and had grown exponentially. It was just massively permeating. I noted last week that that there was no indication prior to Genesis chapter 5 of natural death in chapters 3 and 4, but there is three. there are three references to unnatural death in chapters 3 and 4. There are, there's the accounting of three murders in chapters 3 and 4. And so from the sin of Adam, we just, we, we almost instantly move to, to some of the grossest and the most heinous of kinds of sins. There was murder and there was polygamy and there was vengeance. Notice verse four, verse 26 of Genesis chapter four. To Seth, to him also was, uh, to, to Seth, to him also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. So Enosh is the grandson of Adam. And then the text says this, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So for two generations, everyone that's born rejects God, doesn't adhere to him, walks in their own way. And it's only when Enosh is born that then some again begin to turn to the Lord. It's a wicked world in which which Enoch was born into. We also do well to remember that Enoch was the great-grandfather of Noah. So his son, Enoch's son, was Methuselah. Methuselah, Genesis 5.25, became the father of Lamech. And Lamech became the father of a man named Noah, Genesis 5.29. And we know the time of Noah to be a time of astounding wickedness. It would culminate in the greatest loss of life in a single event in the history of the world. Everyone dead except for Noah and his family members. And while Moses isn't explicit about Enoch's life in Genesis chapter 5, it seems pretty apparent that one of the reasons Moses singles out Enoch and why God took Enoch to heaven the way he did, is because Enoch was so different from the world in which he lived. And we noted this last last week, right? So as, as Moses is giving the account of the lineage of the story of Adam and his family, he just kept saying, this man lived, and this man lived, and this man lived, and this man lived. And then he gets to Enoch, and he said, Enoch walked with God. Enoch was singularly different from every other person that was alive at the time. Says one commentator, although he lived in a corrupt age that was headed for judgment by the flood, Enoch did not conform to the standards of the age in which he lived, but walked in accordance with the standards of God's righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is such a helpful reminder to us. It is a reminder that that we do not to be need, we, we do not need things to be right in this world for us to live rightly before God. I don't need to have a sanctified world to live a sanctified life. 
If I have God and Jesus Christ, I have everything I need to live sanctified and honoring and pleasing to the Lord regardless of what is going on around me. And Enoch is a testimony to that. And take this Take this as an exam, or take this as an encouragement as well. Enoch learned to walk with God. Notice what it says, Genesis 5:22. Enoch lived 65 years. Genesis chapter 5, verse 21. Enoch lived 65 years, became the father of and became the father of Methuselah. Verse 22. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. It's almost as if parenting kick-started Enoch into a life of God. Any parents that can sympathize with that? God, I don't know what to do. He's a teenager. Now, when you live to be 965 years old, when are the teen years and how long are they? And was it that that made Enoch said, I need help? Regardless of what it was that pushed him into that, I want you to see he learned it. It wasn't something that just happened to him, but he cultivated it. And brothers and sisters, we can all learn to be pleasing to God, especially those of us who have within us the Spirit of God indwelling us and guiding us. Faithful living is the kind of living that does not say, the world is against me, I can't do this. Faithful living says, I have the power of God and the Spirit of God and the Word of God in this wicked world and I can delight in God and I can be pleasing to Him and I can pursue fellowship with Him. That's Enoch, who pleased God when the world was opposed to him. Thirdly, I want you to see this. I want you to see... A number of principles for pleasing God. Principles for pleasing God. What, what does a life of pleasing God look like? And this is in verse 6. I think the writer is, in a sense, summarizing already what he said about Abel and Enoch. And he's also setting the table for this is what everybody else in this chapter is going to be living and doing. This is, this is in a sense, the heart of this chapter. This is, this is, this is the kind of life that everybody in this chapter is living and leading. And this is the essential nature of of having faith. And that is to live pleasing to God. Let me ask two questions as we come to this and then let me give you the three principles. First of all, what does it mean to please God? Verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please Him. That word please is used only three times in the New Testament. It's used here in verse 5. It's used here in verse 6, and then it's used in chapter 13, verse 16. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So this particular word is used only on those occasions. The adjective is used in a number of significant passages, some of which you know, Romans 12. We also saw it in Romans 14, a few months ago, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 that we read earlier, Ephesians 5, 10, and a few others. The basic meaning of the word please means that, that something that is done gives pleasure or delight to another. 
Things are done in a way that is satisfying. Grab hold of that word. Satisfying and acceptable to God or to another. I say God because almost always in the New Testament when this word is used, it's used with the Lord as the object. So we live to please the Lord. All things are done for the pleasure of God. God is the quest of our pleasure. God is the quest of our delights. We do all things to be pleasing to Him, to be acceptable to Him, to be satisfying to Him. What are the things that are pleasing to the Lord? I won't take the time to unpack this. Maybe I'll do it in a blog post this week. But Romans 12 tells us that living for Him gives Him pleasure. pleasure. uh, Sharing with others, Philippians 4, gives Him pleasure. Children obeying parents gives Him pleasure. And doing His revealed will, Hebrews 13, gives Him pleasure. So to please God means... I am living in such a way that I want God to be delighted and satisfied in what I do. I want everything I do to be acceptable to Him, honoring to Him. To please God means that God derives satisfaction through what we do. And if you're listening carefully, that's raised another question in your mind. If God can be pleased with me, does that also mean that he can be displeased with me? Can God be more pleased with me today than yesterday? I'm going slowly because I want you to process that. What's he going to say? We tend to say, and I've said it many times, no. He can't be more pleased with us because his, his love for us is in Christ and His love in Christ is full and it can't be increased. His love for us is complete. He sees us with the robes of Christ's righteousness and, and Christ's righteousness can't be increased or decreased. That's true. But we should also notice that everything I've just said relates to our justification in Christ, our position in Christ. And we can do nothing to increase our position in Christ. And once we are in Christ, we can do nothing to decrease our position in Christ. But in our sanctification, Christ's pleasure can be increased And can be diminished. God is sometimes said to be displeased with believers. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Maybe you know the passage. Verse 27. David and Bathsheba had a baby in an ungodly way. The baby died, verse 27, when the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her Bathsheba to his house and she became his wife. And then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
This is the man after God's own heart, and God said, it's evil. In a similar way, in the book of Proverbs, we find in chapter 24, these words, verse 17 and verse 18. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, or the Lord will see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. So when there are people who are doing unrighteous things and we persist in ungodly, unrighteous anger, and when we rejoice at their downfall, it brings the displeasure of God. We find numerous examples of this in the New Testament as well. Ephesians chapter 5 in verse 30, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30. After saying that we ought to speak wisely, not, not speaking with unwholesome words, he says in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. God's Spirit can be grieved by our activity. We'll see in Hebrews chapter 12, that our sin can lead to God's discipline of us. He still loves us as a father. Our, our position in him hasn't diminished. We're still his sons, but we face his discipline, his correction. Our sin can lead to loss of heavenly reward. 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 that we read earlier. Hebrews chapter 10, it says in verse 38, that my righteous one shall live by faith, but if he shrinks back, if he pulls back from living by faith, my soul has no pleasure in him. That doesn't necessarily mean that the salvation is lost, but it doesn't mean that he is living in a way that is unsatisfactory towards God. So in our sanctification, God's pleasure in us can be diminished. But also in our sanctification, God's delight in us can be full and it can be preserved as we become what He designed us to be in our salvation. And it is our responsibility to pursue uh, His delight in us and our delight in Him. So Ephesians chapter 5 tells us in verse 10 that that uh, learning to delight in God and learning what is pleasing to Him is possible. So he says, verse 8, For you were formerly of darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. You ought to be cultivating in your own hearts and in your longings a desire to be pleasing to the Lord. It can be learned. You can learn what is acceptable to Him and do things that are acceptable to Him. What we found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning as we read that is that pleasing God is a conscious decision. So then, whether at home, in heaven with Him, or absent while I'm still on earth, I have as my singular ambition to be pleasing to Him. That, that's a conscious decision. We say, I, I want to do this. Yesterday, Regine and I were making a purchase in a store. And the, the attendant there was less than helpful. And if I was buying a 
dollar pack of gum, I suppose it wouldn't have bothered me. But I was spending hundreds of dollars. And she was just kind of snarky and said, well, we can't do that. Well, can you just hold it for him? No, we can't do that. Okay, I'm exaggerating just a little bit, but not much. I mean, that's the way it felt, right? And it's like, lady, I'm spending hundreds of dollars. And in that mind, I'm, in that moment, I'm just running through my head, pleasing to the Lord, honoring to Him, giving a blessing and not a cursing. No, I'm serious. That was running through my head. That's what it takes. It's a conscious decision. Am I going to indulge the flesh and please the flesh? Or am I, am I going to be attentive to pleasing God, to attempting to honor Him? Pleasing God is living out His revealed will for us. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2. And pleasing God should be a growing reality in the believer's life. Stop me if you... No, don't stop me because I'm going to do it anyway. But stop me if you've heard this before. Finally, brothers... We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how to walk and please God just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Excel still more. We ought to be pleasing God still more. And in that context, right, he's used this very word in our text. You ought to walk, live, and please God and excel still more at it. How to keep pursuing it, driving into it, persisting in it. And so we not, need to constantly be asking, is this, is this thought, is this desire, is this motive, is this longing, is this activity acceptable to God? Does it please Him? Is this something He died to free me to do, or is this something for which he died to free me from so that I don't do this? Okay, three principles for pleasing God. First one, you must come to him. We've talked about this, I think, every message so far. The temptation of the readers was to move away from to move away from Christ. And the writer's repeated admonition was, was not just stay with Christ, but press into Christ, pursue Christ, delight in Christ, find your satisfaction in Christ, um, adore Christ, work hard at moving towards Him. Let me just give you... A couple of examples. We're in chapter 11. Just back up one or two pages. Chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, since it, has, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things. In other words, you, you want to go back to the law, but it doesn't have the substance of what's going to save you. It, it only is looking forward, and it's a very dim view of what is coming in Christ. For, by, for the law, since it can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. If you want to draw near, the law can't do it. If you want to draw near to God, you must go through Christ, which is why he says in verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart of full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. 
Let us draw near to whom? Verse 21, to the great high priest who's over the household of God. Let's draw near to him. The law can't take you there, but Christ can press in towards him. And so he says in chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is. And the emphasis of this letter is the emphasis of this verse. You must come in a particular way and the way to come to God is through Christ in faith, with faith. Without faith, it's impossible. You must believe. You must hang on. There is no genuine going to God if we don't believe Him. We must believe. It's essential. Believing and having faith and persisting with God is not, is not the life of the super saints. It's the life of the ordinaries. It's the life of everybody who's going to be in Christ living in this world. That's, that's verses 35 and following of this chapter. People whose names we don't know, but they lived by faith. Just ordinary people. It's necessary. And it's necessary. Notice verse 6. We must believe. Believe is a present tense. We, we must believe perpetually with an ongoing faith. And it is just that. It is faith. It is reliance on Him. It is dependence on Him. And brothers and sisters, it's a necessity. What else are you going to hang on to today? Don't hang on to the news. I, 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 I try, I kind of try to keep abreast of things that are going on nationally and internationally. So one morning this week, I opened up the Wall Street Journal. They had an update on what's going on in Ukraine. Literally, I read half the article. I closed the app. I said, I, my heart can't take it. It just, it just moves me to despair. I, I don't need to read this. I need to read my Bible. You must believe something. And you must believe in Christ. One commentator says about this phrase, he does not simply say that without faith it is difficult to please God. He says that without faith it is impossible to please Him. There is no substitute for faith. Now remember, when we talk about faith, we're talking about two kinds of faith, right? So there's the faith that leads to justification. There's the faith that says, God, I trust you for my salvation. I cannot save myself. I can't save myself. You must save me. But, but there's also a faith of sanctification, a faith that says, I want to please him and I'm going to come to him regularly with my troubles in life and my difficulties of life and my joys of life. And my pursuits of life, believing that he is good and he will do good to those who believe him. That's the kind of faith that he's talking about in this chapter. Notice also this, when he says, without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is. He's making an assumption, he's making the assumption that you will want to go to him. In fact, I would dare say that it boggles the writer of the Hebrews' mind that someone wouldn't want to go to him. 
He can't conceive of a scenario in which a believer would not want to please God. The writer is assuming the goodness and the normalcy of coming to God. It is the most reasonable thing to do. It is the best thing to do. What else are you going to do? This is another way of simply saying you must desire him, you must delight in him, and you must want him if you want him to find pleasure in you. And by the way, this is not just about what we're doing. This is about our hearts, isn't it? This is what is internal to us. What is it that we must believe about him? If we want to come to him, how do we come to him? And he delineates two ways to come to him. You must believe that he is God. You must believe that he is God. He who comes to God must believe that he is That phrase, he is, cannot mean anything less than we must believe in the existence of God. If we want to please him, we must believe that he exists and that he is true and that he is right. But it also suggests far more than that, doesn't it? Notice that there's no object to the verb is. You must believe that he is I might say to you, well, this afternoon, Terry is, and you would say, well, Terry is, what? And that's where this verse is. It just says he is. What is he? Does that remind you of anything? Exodus 3. Moses. Commissioned by God. Go to my people. Lead my people. Well, who should I say sent me? Tell them I am sent you. To say that we believe that he is, is to say that we believe everything that he has revealed to us about himself. And we believe all of the fullness of his majesty, his glory, his sovereignty and his wisdom. He is everything. We won't take the time to do it, but I, I would I would commend to you, go through this chapter sometime in the next, I don't know how many months we're going to be here, but go through here and just identify how is God revealing himself in each of these stories and incidents? What has he demonstrated himself to be? If I'm supposed to trust him, what is this God that I am to trust? Let me just give you a sample. Verse 37 of chapter 10. Yet in a very little while, he was... He who is coming will come and he will not delay. He will preserve his people. That's who, that's who he is. He is the one who preserves his people. Verse 2 of chapter 11. Excuse me, verse 3 of chapter 11. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. He spoke and everything exists. So that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. Who is this one? He is the one who is the creator And we know from Colossians, the sustainer of every single thing that exists. Who is this one? Verse 4, he is the sovereign judge who gives testimony about who is righteous. Who is this one? He is the one, verse 5, who is not subject to death and sin's curse, but is sovereign over it. And he preserves his people in this perverse world. And then he takes them out and he preserves them in glory. Verse 6, who is this one who is, 
Who is? He is the one who is the great rewarder. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Who is this one? Verse 7. He is the one who warns men of sin and judges men for sin and saves men from sin. And that's next week. Remember, Hebrews 11 is not about great people. Hebrews 11 is about a great God who preserves His people. And our task, our responsibility, is to believe in the one who is, who is never overwhelmed, who exists above and beyond all things, and is eternally and infinitely transcendent and fully capable of maintaining all of his promises that he has ever made. Hallelujah, absolutely. Says one commentator about this verse, belief involves first and foremost, believe in him, belief in him, who is king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. And belief in God carries with it a necessary belief in his word. Listen to this. It is not belief in the existence of a God that is meant, but belief in the existence of the God who once declared his will to the fathers through the prophets and in the last days has spoken in his son. And those who believe in Him can do so in full confidence. Oh, brothers, you must believe that He is. Why is that important? Why is it important to believe that He is? Because we are so prone to forget One commentator writes, belief in his existence means commitment to his presence and involvement in every part of our lives. Listen, in a thoroughly secular society and because of our preoccupation with material things, it is easy for us to ignore God's existence. Oh, let us not forget that he is And the last means of pleasing him is to believe that he is gracious. In what way is he gracious? In what way is he good and kind? We know he's transcendent. That's what this chapter is going to unpack repeatedly. But in that transcendence, he has also mediated himself to us and through the person of Jesus Christ And he has granted to us personal goodness and kindness. He says it this way in this verse. We must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He's a rewarder. Now, he doesn't reward everybody. Notice what the text says, right? Verse 6, he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You have to seek him. You have to pursue him. He doesn't reward those who are apathetic about him and don't pursue him, but a reminder that if we knock, he answers. If we seek, we find. If we ask, he gives. Matthew 7, 7. He is a rewarder of those who seek him. And he delights to be found. He is a rewarder. That word simply means he is a paymaster. He pays wages. To the faithful. And even as I say that though. We understand that. This is a reward. 
It's not an earning. It's not a paycheck. It's a grace gift. It's something that isn't earned. It's not a payment for our service, but it's a blessing from His kindness. And in this statement, we must believe that He is a rewarder. It's, there, there, there's an implicit encouragement that it is okay to be motivated by reward from God. We want to be pleasing to Him because we want a reward from Him. We want to hear from Him. Well done, good and faithful servant. And it's not illegitimate to orient your life to Him in preparation of hearing that. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. This is so helpful. We are afraid that heaven is a bribe and that if we make it our goal, we shall no longer be disinterested. And it's not so. Heaven offers nothing that a mercenary soul can desire. It is safe to tell the pure in heart that they shall see God for only the pure in heart want to. There are rewards. This is such a helpful sentence. There are rewards that do not sully motives. A man's love for a woman is not mercenary because he wants to marry her, nor his love for poetry mercenary because he wants to read it, nor his love for exercise less disinterested because he wants to leap and walk. Love by definition, seeks to enjoy its object. And so, delighting in Him means that we pursue His reward and we desire His reward. Heaven and our rewards are not a bribe. They're a grace gift that should be our deep longing. And in fact, this is This is just fundamental to the introduction that he laid out in this for this chapter in chapter 10, verse 35. He says this, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. So back in chapter 10, as he's setting the table for chapter 11, he's reminding us there's a kind of reward that you ought to be pursuing. And the reward is. To hear from God, well done, good and faithful servant. You've done the thing that is pleasing to me, that is acceptable to me. Friend, you may be here this morning and you may never have considered the importance of believing in God. You may never have considered the importance of following His commands, of living to please Him and be rewarded by Him. It may be this morning that you are here And you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. And I urge you. I compel you. To believe in Jesus. And him only. To obliterate your debt of sin. And give you finally. Something worth living for. Jesus is not just. The means by which we are saved. He is the goal for which we are saved. Chapter 2, verse 9. We do see him, Christ, who was made a little, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's justification. That's how we come to be declared righteous before him through his death. Verse 10 For it was fitting for him. For whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many many sons to glory 
to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He died to call you his brother, to bring you into fellowship with his Father so that his Father becomes your Father and my Father. Oh, friend, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, I urge you, I compel you, believe in Him today. It's the only thing that's going to satisfy you. This world can give you nothing that will satisfy infinitely, but Christ can and Christ does. How does this verse relate to the topic of living by faith? Verse 6. If we want to live by faith in God, we believe that God is God and He is able to do everything that needs to be done in every situation. In my life on Tuesday in Granbury, Texas, and in a pastor's life in Ukraine on Tuesday afternoon, He's sovereign, He's able. It also means that we believe He will always do good to His people, He will not leave them unrewarded. And we believe that there is value in orienting our lives toward him. Believing that he will do what he promised to do. He cared for Abel. He cared for Enoch. He will care for us. We tend to minimize this significance of pleasing the Lord, of pursuing his rewards, of living by faith in him. Listen again to C.S. Lewis. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday At the sea, we are too far too easily pleased. Oh, friend, pursue your pleasure in Christ and you will be never be disappointed. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our fellowship in you and with you and around you. And we trust that our fellowship, our worship this morning has pleased you and has set us on a course to pleasing you the rest of this day, the rest of this week, and the rest of our lives. There's a sense in which this morning is just a regular Sunday morning. It's one of thousands of worship services in which we have participated, some of us. But Father, this could also be a life-transforming worship service. As we set our trajectory towards pleasing the one and living by faith before the one who is immeasurably satisfying. Would you work that in us for your glory and honor, we pray. Amen.